0: good evening good evening my friends out there this is your buddy dan and we have a fun podcast tonight because we're going to talk to a friend of mine uh, who's been on the podcast before seattle mike he recently went to france but before we get there it is thursday october the 6th 2022 just after 7 p.m mountain standard time where i am but it's about Sixish, ish six-ish, whatever, where our good friend Seattle Mike is. And, you know, I was looking over the news out of France, um, just kind of as a basic prep, not that it's relevant, but I was looking at Le Monde and there were some headlines like France forced into redefining military presence in Africa. And then another headline, Europe hails United stand over Russia's war in Ukraine. And then there's something about Andrew Tate. Hey, Mike. Do you know who Andrew Tate is? No. Okay. So this is how disconnected I am from whatever is pop culture at this point. I have no idea who he is. He, according to the headline, he's an Anglo-American influencer that is omnipresent on the internet and is a mis- and is a, mis- a misogynist, which means he hates women or something. Um, oh. You know. Well, that's probably why
1: I don't know who he is because I love women.
0: Well, I you know women are great, men are great. I'm kind of of the general opinion that men and women more or less are equally capable of good and evil, any way you cut it. So.
1: Yeah, but can I make a confession?
0: Yeah. Okay,
1: I've been a manager a long time. I'm no longer a manager, but at smaller companies where I had a lot of uh, did a lot of hiring. I have to admit that I was absolutely biased toward uh, in favor of hiring women. I mean, I'll I'll admit it. If I had what I looked like equally qualified candidates and mom was a man, one was a woman. I was going to choose the woman because I mean, quite honestly, on average, fewer issues at work, they didn't bring their home issues with them, uh, much more organized, able to multitask typically as as leaders, especially in like a service type industry, uh, people will do something for a woman where maybe they won't do something for a man.
0: So yeah, just
1: just my my confession of being a discriminatory hire
0: in favor of women. Well, I mean, you're providing some good reasons why you have this perspective. I, for one, believe it cuts both ways. I, you know, You've know, you had some positive experiences with women. And I'm sure that other people have had not so positive. And, and the only conclusion I can come to is I think men and women are equally capable of, of doing good work and equally capable of being shitheads. And I would agree. I, I just don't. I, I kind of feel like a lot of the debate around the edges, like the, what you're describing, is incidental in a way. But yeah, I get it. If, you, if your experience was one way, I mean, how can I argue against it if it had positive outcomes? You know what I'm saying? Right. If, if it's something you can measure and you can do so in a non-controversial way, then I think, you know, sure. Um, but beyond that, I don't know. I, I just read these headlines because I thought maybe there'd be something interesting in here. But the reality is these headlines read like the same dreck you'd read in any newspaper in this country. <laughs> yeah
1: and yeah yeah absolutely
0: Um. so you you recently went to France
1: I did yeah uh, spent including travel time a complete two weeks there Um. so well I don't know it's kind of difficult because you lose a day going there and you gain a day going back so it's kind of hard to measure, um, but basically 13 days, um, we, we were back on the 14th day uh, from when we left, and um, yeah, it was uh, very interesting, it was a bucket list item for my wife, I, when she first started talking to me about this, um, <clears throat> excuse me, about a year ago, I was um, in a different place, probably. Uh, I didn't believe, actually, that we would have. Well, maybe that's not true. Maybe that's that's not true.
0: Listen, can I, I stop you I right? Felt hey, like there Mike. There was a fifty-fifty chance that we would even be able to take the trip. Yeah, Mike. Can I stop you right there? Yeah. I'm I'm of the every day that things still kind of work. I'm amazed. Yeah. Yeah, that's
1: that, That's kind of where I am. Um, although after having traveled to France, I'm maybe feeling a little more positive. Um, especially since we spent so much time out in the countryside. Right. Um, and, and, and that I think was, was a real blessing. And the fact that my wife is fluent in French, uh, was the, enabled us to do that because otherwise it, it would have been a lot harder than it was and and it was hard in some ways. Um, you know, I, a couple of just kind of random random things I was thinking about today earlier was one, um, you know, when God gave uh, his law to Israel, he uh, spent some time talking about how they treat the sojourner and, um, I, I think that now I, I can understand that for the first time, because there, there were times where both of us were just sort of like, we have no idea what's going on here. <laughs> we, we don't know what to do next. Um, you know, we go into a place of business. Um, and one of the things about uh, France is that you uh, are supposed to greet, it, greet the store when you come in um now, larger grocery stores you don't really do that, but when you come up to the cashier it's really really considered gauche if you don't um uh, you know make a, a nice uh gesture of saying hello um you know that type of thing, kind of like like the United States, but a little more formal and less uh uh sort of fake and intru- fake friendly I, i'm not sure
0: how to it's not unfriendly yeah it, there, there's some dis. there's some distance to it but it's 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 um respectful you know it's a respectful type of greeting okay like, okay well i got a set does, of does that makes sense yeah it makes perfect sense i got a set of questions i want to ask you sure and i want to just do this in an organized way because it's so helpful right to be organized Yeah. yeah yep yep Well, first question, what was the worst thing that happened on your trip? The worst. Well,
1: um, my wife did have to go to the hospital. Um, and I would say there was about 10 minutes there where I wasn't sure we were going to be able to get help, maybe even a little bit longer. Probably more like 45 minutes because it was at night. Um, but once we acquired the help, um, it was I amazing. Mean, the experience was amazing. So I, I'll have to, I will have to say, um, we ended up at a at a private hospital, which was the, the only place that had an emergency room open and <clears throat> the treatment was awesome. Um, but that wasn't really the, the worst
0: experience. It was uh, I, nothing bad happened. Yeah. Other than that. Right. Um,
1: you know, she had a, she had, a, uh, she fell. And she's okay, and everything worked out fine, but, um, you know, it was it was worrisome there for a, for a few minutes. But aside from that, um, the first Saturday we, we were there, well, the first day we were there, we went to, did a lot of the, you know, sort of obligatory Paris sightseeing, yeah. and we were tired, but we went to the Louvre, and there had so first off, the place is enormous. I it's hard to get a, to explain the scale of the place. Um, pictures don't really. I mean, you just. It, I I can't explain it. Yeah. Um. <clears throat> there must have been thirty thousand people there. Just based on me comparing it to like a football stadium where I've been and seen sixty thousand people in one place. Yeah, and the scale of that place, and, and the density of every single room, and every hallway, and every stairway. Um, and so, is this not, still the was, worst was, thing that, was that was happened? Great,
0: for you? That was not a great
1: experience. That that was probably the worst part of our trip.
0: But you um, talked a little bit in your notes about some of the features of urban Paris, and let's talk about the train ride the way you described the trains, it didn't sound like those were enjoyable.
1: Not really, I mean, they're trains. Uh, You know, we we got into Charles de Gaulle, um, Charles de Gaulle, we found our train. Um, We got on the train and waited a while, and then some guy came up. I mean, the lights were going on and off, and it was, you know, you could kind of hear them prepping the train. And then somebody came up and said, hey, uh, you guys might want to get off the train. This one's broke. <laughs> so we had to get off the train and we got on another one and then waited a while. And then a driver came and got on that train and then off we went. And it's about a 45-minute ride um, into the station where we, where we got off, which is just a, um, a five-minute walk from the hotel where we stayed right down there um right right in the middle of right, i mean like a 10 minute walk from notre dame cathedral right and we stayed in a very tiny little hotel um not far from uh jardin de luxembourg which is a really cool kind of famous park a really amazing i mean everything we saw was just you know sort of it's just very very different the paris suburbs um it's not great. It's kind of a shithole. Um, I mean, it looks a lot like New York City. Uh, I don't know if you've ever, uh, you know, I've I've taken a train and a bus ride from from Newark uh, Liberty International Airport into downtown New York City,
0: uh-huh.
1: and you know, traveled around New York City. It's kind of, it kind of reminds me of that. Paris is much more polite. Um, the food is very much uh, a lot better. Everything in Paris is cheaper than New York City. Um, based on my ex- comparisons, you know, I, I was in New York City in to- 2018 for a few days. And um, based on my comparisons there, um, the last day we were in Paris, we were in a suburb called en France, which is the, the suburb attached to the airport. And it's kind of a middle class place. We went into this nice neighborhood. And we were going to try and have a a last, you know, French dinner. And I got out of the car and there was people, it was kind of a mixed neighborhood, uh, mostly French people, you know, like, like obviously white French people. This is not a racial thing. And it was just very obvious that, you know, we were not welcome. I I got the, an, an overwhelming sort of feeling of danger. So... I said, hey, do you really want to eat here to to my wife? She said, no, I'm not getting a good feeling either. So we went to a local mall near the airport and (laughs) had our last meal in a mall, which honestly felt like any mall you go to in America. It's kind of upscale and fancy.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it was fine. So it sounds like you didn't really have anything really traumatic happen to you guys on your trip.
1: No, other than the, you know... My wife uh, cutting herself really, really badly. Yeah, and and uh, you know, it <laughs> like ten stitches.
0: Yeah, I um, mean that's pretty shocking, and and, a, and it's it's disruptive. But that or, stuff it can yeah. happen at home, right? Um, but it sounds like you, you you thought the medical care she received was good. It was great. Yeah. So, well, once we got them convinced to send an ambulance into this little village, we
1: were where we were staying. Which, by the way, she had to do because I could not speak the, enough French to, to do that. Um, and, uh, by the way, if you ever travel and you're going to travel outside of places where enclaves where people don't speak English, you should have an idea of what number sort of number to call, <laughs> which we didn't. And also have some phrases uh, saved of, of the local ling- language, like, you know, I need an ambulance. um you know, my wife or my husband. You know, a list of traumatic injuries. It's a just, just some good travel advice, and you can bet next time I travel, no matter where it is, I'm going to have that.
0: Well, I mean, I think a really good phrase to know in, in France, if you're calling up that emergency number, is "Help! Um, my hooker is overdosed on cocaine." <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how you say that in French, but <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> help! My hookers OD'd. you know. I'm kidding. So, this gets me to the what was the best thing? Cuz I think I know, but you can go whatever direction you want to. But what was the best thing about the trip? The best thing was the food.
1: By by far. Um that that still sticks with me. Um I, it it's uh it, i still have a hard time thinking of words um but I, I guess i would sum it up by saying that the food tastes better um i noticed so we arrived on friday france paris time at seven fifty a.m and the next morning i use some natural deodorant that's very 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 mild and they have kind of like you know coconut and lime flavor or scent and whatever right well this happens to be coconut lime and in the United States I can barely smell it Saturday morning I opened up that deodorant and I was like what the hell I mean like I had a 20x increase in my sense of smell and I I don't I that's there's no explanation for that. I do not have an explanation for that. I cannot explain it.
0: Well, I, I have a theory, but but you know I, I want you to continue on the subject. But I'll just throw it at you, and it's really quite simple. That if if you're, if you were to say, is it possible that the food is healthier in other countries than it is in the United States? I agree with that. Um, and 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 our food isn't really any cheaper from what you're saying. Like from what you told me before, it's like it sounds like a lot of the meals are very reasonable, but you pay um, a lot of money right now for food in this country that just doesn't taste quite right. I can talk to you about cottage cheese. The last few weeks, I eat cottage cheese for breakfast, and in the last few weeks, it's just like it's this white bleach slop. It, there's not even any curds in it. You know, it's just a slop and. I opened up this can, I won't say what it was, but it was something I, I might have bought 10 years ago. And it wouldn't have made me want to throw up. And I opened it up today and it smelled and tasted like, well, I don't really know what dog food tastes like. But given most of taste is in the nose, it, it seemed like dog food, you know? And and listen, dude, I don't care what it is. I don't care if it comes from the, the vegetable aisle. I don't care if it's something you cook or something that's prepared it seems like food in the United States has been on the decline. And, in terms, yeah. and, and if, you're, if you don't have nutrition from food, and I know it's a long-winded way of saying it, but that impacts things like eyesight and hearing and sensitivity and, frankly, overall health. If you're eating, essentially, food that has no nutritional value other than calories, then you're really just, you're really just slowly starving to death. Yeah. I mean, don't you think that's a fair statement?
1: I, I I agree. And um I try I try to limit my processed foods, but I mean, like, who knows how good the vegetables are that we're getting.
0: It's everything. You know? Listen, dude, it's everything. I cook stuff from scratch and I and I also get stuff out of the can. And it doesn't matter the source. Everything yeah. is and I know this makes me sound crazy, but it seems like a lot of our food supply is just not very healthy, and you know it's funny because I remember watching this, um, and I know I'm doing a bit of a, a diatribe. We're gonna get back to France in a second, but I remember watching that Penn and Teller show on Showtime. Bullshit, and they did this one episode on food, and it was like they basically want you to believe that the Norman Borlaug way of getting food out of the ground is equivalent to the sustainable three-field system type method. And their argument is, we'll look at the calories. And listen, in terms of calories, they really do pack in the calories. The problem is we need more than just sugar from our food to survive. Isn't that a fair statement? Yeah. You know, well, you, you, said, you said you had a skin condition that kind of cleared up because of this, going to France and eating the Yeah, food.
1: yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's kind of creeping its way back. I don't know if it's food. I don't know if it's, um, you know, something that's in our environment. But this started happening to me when I was, um, let's see, in 2000, late 2006 is when I, when I first started having this issue. Nobody can explain it, and they did some tests and said, oh, you're allergic to wheat. And it does make a difference to me in terms of my overall kind of like congestion, if I eat wheat or not. And I ate a lot of wheat in France. Let me tell you what. (laughs) I I just ate like a French person. And that's not the source of my skin issue as far as I can tell. Um, maybe, Maybe it's GMO wheat. Maybe it's whatever crap they're spraying on us in the air. I don't know, Dan. I I, I I can't
0: explain it. I mean, I know. And I'm not expecting you to have an explanation. But the thing that troubles me is that the truth about the food or the air or the water is one of these things that we're just not going to know until it's too late. And it's way more insidious than any magical bioweapon thought up by some science fiction writer in Wuhan. Way more scary that there could be materials in our environment that are slowly killing us, and um, you know, you, you just don't know what day it's going to be yours. I don't know, dude. Maybe I'm making more out of this than I should, but it does seem like the food you ate there was actual food, which means it contained more than just sugar. Yeah, oh, oh, for sure. Yeah, there was something deeply satisfying
1: about eating. I mean, deeply, deeply satisfying. I had some experiences that left me in tears, dude.
0: Yeah, and, and that makes me jealous because, like I said, it's not just the food here seems like it's crap, but with respect to inflation, we're we're just paying a lot more for this food, and it's kind of crappy. Yeah. Um, it's it's really a slow burn in a lot of ways, and yeah. I I just am, I'm of the opinion that a lot of the stuff that I don't know how to put this. A lot of the issues where where it's like, well, you need to get off your butt and start jogging and shit like that. They'll say things like that. The reason why you're overweight is because you're not exercising. But I've known a lot of people in my life who don't exercise much at all. And they eat often more than I have and they're skinny. So I don't think any of it's that simple. But what I will say is this. I think that our food is causing a lot of health problems. And when people say things like, well, you can go find food or you can go grow food. When I was living in that apartment in Seattle, how was I going to grow food for anybody to include myself? There was like 150 square feet.
1: No, of course not.
0: You know? Uh, Yeah, no no, no way. I I think it's micronutrients, you
1: know, um, each village, uh, like every town, but like a small village where we were, they have a a boulangerie which is a bakery, uh, you know, bread like but it's bread, right? It's primarily bread. It's croissants. It's uh you know uh bread and chocolate pain au chocolate, which is a croissant with chocolate in it, uh shaped shaped differently. They all kinds of different little breads, um you know, different types of baguettes, big French low, small, medium, whatever. And stuff's fresh every day, and one of the really cool things is every village we were in, almost invariably, I would see somebody walking down the road with a baguette in their hand. Yeah. (laughs) Like, they just went to the boulangerie, got a baguette, and they're walking home. They got one, that's their baguette for the day. And the taste of the butter, um, you know, I I switched over to Kerrygold butter quite a while ago because it tastes like butter. But it's nothing like the, the butter I bought just at the regular grocery store, um, and you know, put on my bread. It was, you, you know, like like I remember fresh butter being, because um, I had an aunt who had dairy cows, you know, a few dairy cows, and uh, when I'd go over to her house visit, you know, we'd make we'd make some butter sometimes for for fun, um, and. Everything was better. We went to a patisserie, which that's kind of like the fancy pastry shop. And uh, went there a few times and I had this macaroon, which um, there's a name for it. and I can't remember it, but it's a raspberry. It's like something uh, de framboise and it has four raspberries around it uh, that are holding up the two ends of the macarons, which are, you know, egg whites
0: mm-hmm.
1: and they're, you know, Uh, raspberry colored and inside is a big thing, of cream, big ball of cream. And, um, I took a bite out of that and I was just blown away by the richness and, um, the way that the cream made me feel inside, um, the earthiness of the raspberries, the, I could taste the, the leaves—I could taste raspberry leaves in the raspberry. Um, you know, my grandpa had a big garden, uh, like an almost an acre, when I was a kid, and he really knew what he was doing. And he had a lot of different types of berries, and the raspberries were always my favorite. And that's what it tasted like. Um, <clears throat> and we sat there on a bench, and you know, we're in this village that's on a hill, and I can see the whole countryside. We're sitting there in the sunshine, and we're looking out over vineyards and, um, you know, the countryside, and I just wept. <laughs> like, and it wasn't just from the taste, it was from how it made me feel inside, like a drug. Like, like um, I'd been holding my breath for decades, and I finally came up for air.
0: Yeah, well, this is what troubles me, because it sounds like what you were eating was food. I mean, you know what I mean? Yeah. that's everything you described just now. If you read, like, I don't, I'm not an expert, like, I haven't read all the fiction that's out there, but there's some pretty great fiction out there where food plays a character in the story. And if you read any of this fiction um, that's out there like that, the way the writers will describe the food is how you've described it. But if you asked me to describe the, the cottage cheese I got at the store yesterday, I would say a a, a plastic bowl of bleached, uh, bleached cow snot, and, and no fl- no good flavor to it. No, none of that shit you just described. In fact, a lot of just depravity and bleakness. Um, th- those are the words i choose to describe a lot of the food you buy at the store now. Yeah, and I'm sorry. It's just, it, 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 I I believe you're an honest man. I've met you. You, you wouldn't mess with me, I hope. So you're, you're describing to me a firsthand subjective account. Now of course, maybe I go to France and say this is all gross, but I don't think that's very likely. It sounds like you found a source of food and in a rational world, which includes a world prior to civilization, if you find a source of nutritious food, you take advantage of that. you know you sort of like say, hey, you know this is a better watering hole. This is a better source of food, but the problem is, how do you do it? Like one of the features of healthy food is healthy food goes rotten. Yeah. So, so, the, so here's the here's the answer to the riddle: and, How could and you not, not overnight? It, right? it, exactly. Like, like you have a sack of potatoes,
1: and you know you're eating out of the sack of potatoes, and then like you know, it's like yeah, I should probably eat those potatoes up, but they're fine. But then the next day one of them is just completely rotten and it's dripping out of the bottom of the bag yeah. even though it wasn't that way yesterday. Or yeah. tomatoes that, that just start to like dry rot in your, in your, even though they're being refrigerated. Like one day they're fine and the next day you look and there's like three of them that are suddenly rotten. Like, what, what,
0: what, what's up with that? Well, it's, it's why you preserve food. The reason for preserving food is food in general goes rotten.
1: Right, but not
0: overnight. Not overnight, not overnight. If you have a root seller, if you have a root cellar, you can have carrots and potatoes and things last months. Right. But, but the point... The
1: weird, the weird thing about what I've noticed of, of what I see of the vegetables I buy in the store now is they're good, they're good, they're good, they're good. They're good. All of a sudden, they're not. And that's, that is weird.
0: Well, I don't... I, I believe a lot of it's coming out of warehouses. So it doesn't really shock me. And they do a lot of things with basic chemistry, the basic biology of how plants worked in order to do that. They manage things like oxytocin and other types of plant hormones in order to maintain certain vegetables and fruits in certain conditions. So there's many techniques, but the point is you can, I think a person could tell the difference if they had experience could tell the difference between a potato that came out of a, a three field system, sustainable farm or a potato that came out of like Idaho Spud factory potato mart. I believe you could tell, I believe I could tell the difference, probably. The problem is, the last experiences I had with healthy food was probably when I was a kid. Right. Okay. You know, at that moment, you know, it's like you pick a year. The first time you see your mom buy Velveeta that, or, or buy Tang, you, you realize something's gone awry. Right. Like you know, I don't care that astronauts drink Tang. <laughs> the whole astronaut topic is a subject for another right. day. But right. Tang is not orange juice.
1: Yeah. Oh, and speaking of potatoes, I used to like potatoes raw. Like, not that I would eat a whole potato raw, but if I was cooking potatoes and I and I sliced one, I would take a a chip and eat it raw, and it would taste like a root. You know, you could taste the earthiness in there. But now what it tastes like
0: is lawn fertilizer. Well, th- that's all that it is. Right. I mean, that's the Norman Borlaug model. Right. And, and, and it's, so, it's so absurd because I don't want to beat up on Penn and Teller. For a lot of libertarians, it's like, well, Penn and Teller are awesome and whatever. I don't want to totally beat up on them. But I remember them ripping into people who supported sustainable farming. And it was all about like, well, more poor people are going to die. But what if there's a counter-argument? What if, in fact, more people will eat? Because this is what I was getting at about the whole, like, how do you get the healthy French food here? The answer is you don't. You grow healthy food where you live. And guess what? When you start thinking about the soil and the air and the water, then all of a sudden you start reconnecting with your environment and you start giving a shit. Right. Okay? Then you start saying, holy fuck, it's kind of weird that the EPA, I know we beat up on this one before, but the EPA considers handing out flyers to people fishing in the Duwamish as a solution, saying, don't eat the crab. You know, that's not the solution. That's not the way we get there, but that's the EPA's solution. Right. I mean, if you ask me, we're basically growing food on some type of emptiness, and we're pouring a lot of pain onto that. We're pouring a lot of, like, well, we stole this from here and stole that from here. We're pouring it onto the, to the emptiness. And then whatever is left of the topsoil in whatever toxic form it's in ends up in the Gulf of Mexico. And, and that's where we're at mostly with growing food in America right now. And that has to change. I want to be able to enjoy healthy food without flying to France.
1: Well, at some point it will change because as the, the, the permaculture guys will tell you, you know, 10 calories of energy and effort to produce one calorie of food is not sustainable.
0: It never, yeah, it never was. It never was. But it's kind of like that analogy, that that analogy I use, I'm going to drink a little coffee because I got a bit of cotton mouth here. I've used this analogy before um, because I've had the issue of peak oil come up in some of my podcasts and I've researched the topic and here is my basic position um if you have a civilization that is the equivalent of a ford pickup with 500,000 miles on it that gets, you know, 20 gallons to the mile and you end up broken down by the side of the road is it because you ran out of energy or is it because you have a shitty pickup and, and the way we currently run affairs as human beings the way we currently interact economically, politically, whatever term you want to use, to me it's like the Ford pickup. So, so what other outcome did we ever expect? Yeah. This isn't Eden, is it? No. So, so no. If, we, if, we drill, if we drill a hole in the ground, we're not going to probably get an infinite supply of fresh water. And if we drill a hole in the ground, we're probably not going to get an infinite supply of oil. Yeah. Probably, right? If if you're a Christian, you can recognize that. And if you're an atheist, scientific materialist, you should absolutely understand this. So why yeah. are why are people believing this is the eat your have your cake and eat it too problem, Mike? Why do people think we can have this the Norman Borlaug way and still have healthy food? Um the same the same reason why people think that they can send their kids to a government prison and expect them to get educated and i i tell you it's the same ford pickup mike right it really is it's the same crappy ford pickup i don't care if it's yeah. oil i don't care if it's food if if you don't if you're an american and you don't understand this the production of most of the food in this country is deeply regulated and deeply controlled and highly crony. And for all intents and purposes, well, I'm gonna call it government because you can say that Archer Daniels Midland or some of these other companies are independent, but they're only independent in the way that Lockheed is independent, okay? If you take away the subsidies, if you take away all that cronyism, a lot of these big agri-corps would fold and, and probably, as you pointed out, they're probably going to anyways.
1: And the, the, the direct subsidies are just the tip of the iceberg. The rest of that is all of the cronyism and the regulation and um, the, the the incentive structures that enable those giant corporations to even exist in the first place That in a free market they probably just wouldn't exist.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and so here's my answer to the conundrum of how I get healthy food. I get healthy food in part if I can find a source of it locally and honestly, even people that call themselves organic really aren't. Or yeah. we can wait until after the collapse when it, when we're just going to have no choice. If we want to actually eat, we're going to have to do sustainable farming and it's going to have to be local. Yeah. Um. We have no choice. This is the thing. This is where we're at in the game. We might have thought we had a choice 50 years ago. We don't have a choice now. If we don't migrate to something more sustainable for farming, it's absolutely guaranteed that billions of people are going to die. But what's as bad is we're going to continue to have billions of people with chronic illnesses that, in my opinion, are mostly due to our food. Yeah. You know, diabetes, cancer, heart disease, if you ask me, um, and to include dementia, I think a lot of that is impacted by the diet we have. And for all the calories, we really are kind of starving to death. Yeah, we're getting fat, but the problem is human beings need to do more than just store fat. They have to maintain metabolism and ongoing operations. The reason why all that food turns into fat is because it's not much good for anything else for our body.
1: Well, it's even worse than that, Dan. When when your body ingests toxins, it stores it in fat. Yeah. So, um, and, and that's why it's so hard for people to lose weight because their body doesn't want to get rid of that fat all at once, and and you know have your liver shut down.
0: Exactly, and that excuse me, it wants to process it a little bit at a time. Right. And. and And that's, that's really the sad thing.
1: You know, I, I didn't see, I saw a few fat people in France, you know, who were French, right? (laughs) I did see some, I did see some Northern Europeans who were a little fatter, um, you know, Germans and, uh, some people from, you know, like Sweden and, and, uh, Holland who are just a, a little heavier. Um, and I saw some Americans who were also just typical Americans, Um, but as far as your average French person, no, I, I didn't see much of it. And, you know, I, I sent you a picture of a a gigantic platter for 12 euros that I got at, at a tavern. And this was local cheese, hams, ham and breads. And actually the potatoes were local too the French fries. Um, and that was heaven on a plate, dude. I mean, that. I don't think I've ever felt so full and satisfied in my life. Um, <laughs> I had a, I had a crepe, uh, out on the coast of, uh, Brittany, um, which in, in French is Britannia. Um, and it was, uh, made out of buckwheat. And inside it was a uh, smoked fish in a white sauce. And, it was like little little pieces of herring or little herrings or something. I'm not sure what the, the fish were. So we didn't know the name. I neither one of us can figure out the name, but I just ordered whatever on the menu and, and went with it, right? Yeah. Oftentimes I had no idea what would show up. And it it was always delightful. <clears throat> always. And the the uh, ciders, um, and I had all kinds of ciders. Uh the cider was phenomenal. I had a pear cider that um, was like uh, as complex as a wine. It was really, really just sort of unbelievable. I, I don't know, man, everywhere I went. In Paris, the food was good. It was r- so shockingly good. It just was jarringly good so much better than anything I had experienced we walked into a random cafe next to the Sorbonne had breakfast there and the guy made us uh, coffee you know little cups of coffee he had Valencia oranges and I watched him behind the bar fresh squeeze glasses of orange juice and a little in a little hand press <laughs> for us um, he cooked eggs sunny side up that were completely perfectly cooked with uh, a little uh, homemade, uh, Jam—that's something that they really pride themselves. They say this jam is homemade. Um, a lot of the restaurants and the bed and breakfast we stayed at, uh, the yogurt—they'll uh, say, "Yeah, this is fresh-made yogurt from you know whole whole milk." Uh, and and then the the ham and the meats, like the ham. So these these two piece two eggs came on a uh, what was called bacon, but it was just really thinly sliced lean ham. And it was unbelievable, man. Like, uh, I, I just don't have the words to describe the well, tastes
0: in it. You know what? I, here's, a, here's a couple things about complexity in food. And, and, and we've already mentioned this, but it's really critical. A big portion of it in, involves the, ol, the olfactory senses. That means our ability to smell. Like probably, I don't know what the percent would be, but you could probably say 90% of taste is in the nose. Yeah. And the other thing about complexity is it has to have more than just sugar and corn syrup in it. For complexity right. to be there, there's other nutrients. You know, one of the reasons why I love walking these dogs is I've learned about dogs, but I've also learned about people and maybe something we've we've forgotten. But, you know, these dogs are always smelling around and not just oh, yeah. for some kind of crap on the ground. But for actual plants, and and I've, right. I, in a way, I think they can actually smell the stuff that might help them, that might make their stomach feel better. And you know what I'm getting at here is that when I smell the food in the grocery store, yeah, there's still you can still smell a little bit of the citrus. You can still smell, you know, when you pick up that orange, it's an orange or it's an apple. But tell you the truth the distinctive smells of food have have kind of gone away. Um, they've done so much to turn it into this industrial process. One of the things they've absolutely squeezed out, again, is how they grow it, is the complexity.
1: Yeah. The, like, you can add all of the uh, trace mineral, all of the minerals to the fertilizer that you think the human body needs. And you can dump that stuff on the ground in a water-soluble form. But there's no possible way that you're going to be able to recreate what happens when an animal eats an insect in a plant and or a plant shits it out bacteria come in and decompose the shit along with the other plant matter that's around it and in that they consume the trace elements that the chicken or the goat or the cow or the horse or whatever is eaten. And then that uh, decomposing bacteria is encapsulated in a little uh, uh, delivery system that the plant then can ingest and actually pull into its cell structure. It's called bio bioavailability. and Uh, No laboratory, as far as I know, is going to be able to reproduce that. And if they did, it probably would kill us. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, (laughs) you know, I think we get fed a propaganda periodically that totally takes the issue off issue. And one of the propaganda things is, well, you got to stop eating that bread. But I've been convinced for years that if you could actually have bread the way they used to have it, that it actually wouldn't make you as fat. And it sounds like you had some bread when you were in France. and I, I ate bread at every meal, and I lost
1: eight pounds. <sighs> I, I ate like a fatso, dude.
0: I'm so jealous. I mean, I'm really uh, jealous. I'll admit it. I
1: got on the scale on my first day back. You know, after uh, like we came back, we had a, uh, like a day. I got up the next morning. I ate breakfast. I got on the scale before I got in the shower, and I'm like, holy shit, I lost eight pounds.
0: Yeah. No, I'm absolutely convinced, a hundred percent convinced, that if we had healthier food, a lot of these issues health-wise would go away. It doesn't mean you shouldn't have self-control. Everybody should have self-control. But honestly, dude, I don't eat a ton of food. My worst sin is beer, and I'm not like drinking a ton of beer, I guess, compared to the worst case scenario. But I got to say, it's a real struggle to not gain weight with just the food we have. And I I just, I'm sorry. I also get upset when people come back to you. Well, you need to cook more meals. But as you pointed out, you can take all those vegetables and all those potatoes. But if they're being grown in a way that no plant was ever evolved to, to be grown as in a, in a kind of a laboratory, well, you need this much magnesium and this much calcium. You, you right. pointed out that what makes these things bioavailable is this bouillabaisse, this mixture of life in the soil. And, and it's another right. way of saying, dead soil's probably not gonna produce healthy food. No. No,
1: absolutely not. And, uh, you know, much more to your point, Um, when you have good food, you're going to eat less calories because you feel, I I felt what I told Sue was that there was not a day that I was there that I didn't feel absolutely and completely satiated.
0: Because your body was telling you, you ate enough food because you were eating food. it It was even more than that. It was the, the,
1: the politeness of the culture. Um one thing I appreciate about French restaurants is the waiter doesn't pretend to be your friend. They're like a doctor. They're there to do a job and get you the food you need and whatever else it is that you might request. Right? Like that's that. And by the way, there's no salt or pepper on the table. There's no sauces on the table. There's nothing. The food comes prepared the way that you need to have it. (laughs) Like, Why would you salt my food? You asshole. (laughs)
0: well I mean that's
1: indicative of something isn't it
0: yeah I I just don't it's
1: already salty Uh, I'm gonna tell you that right now but it didn't it wasn't salty in the way that it made me you know need to drink five gallons of water I drank a lot of water while I was there but um that's just because I do anyway (sighs) I, I I uh so um we'd been there in the village about three days and we walked by a real estate office and I, we'd been walked by it several times before and I just stopped to look and I started looking at the, the, they had like sheets pasted on a display in the window, about 20 of them. And I'm looking at the price and I said, Sue, can you read this? What does that say there? And it said something like, um, it was a word I didn't recognize and it was phrased in a way that made me think that that was actually the the, the 69,000 euros that I saw for this little little kind of um, small house uh, on a big, a, basically an acre. I thought maybe that was the real estate fee, right? Like go make an offer on the house, but we're going to take 69,000 euros. She said, no, that means fee paid by the seller. I'm like... So I start looking at around, right? Did, did you see the link I sent you? Yeah. 189,000 euros for a 4,400 square foot, um, basically two dwelling house on uh, a quarter or a third of an acre in a French village. Yeah. Like, I mean,
0: so basically the euro and the dollar are more or less at parity right now. And so yeah. you know just to translate to the listeners if it said 69,000 and change that's roughly 70 grand. Yeah. You know. And but here's the deal. Can you as a non-French person go buy that property? Yes, you can. I can. And how how does that work out? Do you end up eventually becoming a citizen or do you end up renewing some type of a, a pass or something? You know, a temporary pass? I mean, how does that work if an American wanted to buy a piece of property in France? I'm not saying you have to know, but... Um... No, uh,
1: from what I... From the, the little bit of research I've done, you can absolutely own a piece of property there. You can come and visit it. Um, you could... If you own property there, you could probably get a longer-stay visa to, okay. to, because now you have business. Um, but you're probably going to have to go back and touch base in the U.S. and then come back again.
0: Okay, so you you'd have you to... Wanna,
1: if you want to immigrate uh, into the country, it's not that difficult to do. Um, one of the things you have to do is you have to be able to uh, speak French um, to, to, to really get in there and live and have a permanent visa um, because... Although there are people that do it, um, they they tend to subsist. They live in cities where there's lots of English spoken. Their their standard of living is a little lower because the, the purchasing power is less. And they subsist on like teaching English <laughs> or being a nanny, um, that type of thing. If you want to go and have a good business, you need to have a business plan. You need to um, offer a service that the the, the French government thinks that it that it's going to need um, and you need to be able to or you need to be able to basically tell the French government, I am self-sufficient and can completely support myself and you don't have to worry about me becoming a burden on your society. Those are the kind of the ways that you can emigrate to France, uh, emigrate, immigrate emigrate from the U.S. into France. It's not impossible. Um, the way I felt when I was there I felt like I wanted to move there now that I'm home and have had some time to think about it. Um, we're just going to sort of go back for two weeks every year. Um, that's our plan now. And we're going to stay right in the village where we were and, you know, do some touring around that area. But we, we drove, you know, I, I drove 1200 kilometers, which is, um, what about 750 miles or so? Yeah. Something like that. Um, so I put a lot of miles on the car the rental uh, in five days uh, we saw a ton of things we experienced a tremendous amount we packed you know we did 14 hour days I think mean, we were really really on the go um,
0: you know but it doesn't
1: really feel like yeah. uh, uh, you know the village life is what it was that we
0: loved that was awesome so you, so you would recommend the countryside. Versus, you know, going to the cities.
1: If you have somebody with you that is relatively fluent in French. And I'm not talking about, you know, knowing how to go into a restaurant and order. I'm talking about, you know, being able to go in someplace and get your needs met.
0: Yeah, have a conversation.
1: Yes. Have a, a basic, you know, transactional conversation and describe, you know, like be able to describe the things that you need. Not just uh, you know be able to pronounce the words that you that you see on a menu, um, or, or you know have a look, do some abstract ordering, but have a level of fluency. Um, your time will be much better. Otherwise, you're going to struggle. I can't tell you that. It'd be like somebody from you know Vietnam showing up in a. Back you know backwoods of Missouri right that that's going to be hard.
0: <laughs> yeah, probably. Um, but that's probably happened in you know especially after the boat lift back in the mid seventies. You know, right? Um, but it's not to
1: say that that person had a great time. No. Right. That that's and that's my point. Like if if you want to have a good time, yes, go out to the French countryside, but probably state of tourist attractions. There's castles. There's lots of things you can do where people there are going to speak English. So, um, you know, if any if any of your listeners want to reach out to me and you know them and they want some advice, I can definitely, you know, correspond with them via email. Well, I
0: included um, the Twitter link, your Twitter link in the notes, if that's okay, because I figured sure that's a yeah. public profile you can let people hook into and it doesn't say sure. too much about you.
1: Yeah. And I, I just have to warn people that I haven't been very active on Twitter or really on any kind of media at all. I, I, I post on there once in a while. I go on like a two hour posting binge, maybe once a month or something, but that's about it. Um, but yeah, I'm happy to do that. I'm, I'm really happy to, to give people some advice from, from my perspective. And, you know, this is just what I experienced, um, it's a it's a limited experience. There were times where I was completely lost in terms of just what was going on. I didn't understand. Um, so you, you have to keep that in mind. Uh, and you know, maybe we tend to draw conclusions that are uh, not correct in, in the other times. But when I was lost, I just literally just sort of put my mind up park and went, okay, <laughs> that happened. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, but no, it was good. We we uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, another experience I had that was sort of magical was going into a, a couple of wineries. So one of them was in the village that we stayed in and that was pretty cool. Um, it, it's, uh, you know, there's this night, uh, night castle from the 900s. Um, and I do want to talk with you about that at some point, uh, which is a really weird thing that occurred to me while we were there. Um, Put a pin on that. And uh, this wonderful French woman gave us a tour. It was all in French. And by that time, I was maybe picking up about 40% of what she said because she kept it pretty basic for us. Yeah. And that was kind of fun. And then at the end, we went in and tasted a bunch of wine. The Sauvignon Blanc that is grown in the area is uh, really cool because there's three different soil types. And if they keep the grapes separate, separate when they vent, vent the wine, um, you can really taste the soil. That's really cool. And then she gave us each a little glass of the juice that they had just pressed from some grapes. And the, the juice
0: is like on ice waiting to be uh, uh, fermented. Yeah. And
1: Dan, that might be the best thing I've ever put in my body.
0: And another thing you pointed out is oh, that...
1: unbelievable. Yeah. That grape juice.
0: Yeah. Another thing you pointed out with the French wine is you don't have all the sulfides.
1: Yeah, I, I consumed an entire bottle of uh, somnia Blanc from that winery because Sue doesn't really drink. And I ate maybe over about an hour and a half. And uh, the alcohol content is a little less. It's maybe a percent less. Um uh, or half, you know, half to a percent less on average than, than an American bottle of wine, um, and I think they do that on purpose to, and, you know, to make sure that you don't that they have the flavors that they want. Um, but a whole bottle of wine is still, you know, uh, more than I would drink in a sitting here, and I didn't have a headache
0: or a hangover. Huh. So why so, didn't why didn't you get me a case of that? fine
1: one. I didn't even get myself a case oh, okay okay okay, okay. <laughs> I, I really wanted to bring a case home but the more I researched it the more I realized that probably it would end up in the hands of the, the border pirates so um,
0: which which aka means the government
1: right know, right yeah. it, it, it would just they would find a pretext to um, impound it and drink it themselves so that, that is the overwhelming experience of people's accounts that I read, unless they have connections. So you, you could absolutely, I could buy, I could have bought a case of wine. Um, I could have uh, exported it. <clears throat> I could have presented all the paperwork and the invoice and paid the tariffs and everything. And there's probably about a 60 or or 70% chance from what I've found that you'll never see it.
0: Yeah, I mean, and it's funny because we were sold, when we were sold globalism, we were sold that stuff like that would never happen, <laughs> right. ever, Right. and it really was just another kind of bullshit. Um, I don't know, go ahead.
1: You know, we did bring a few bottles home, I gave a, a bottle to my dad of, of uh, Pinot Noir, which is the other, uh, which is the red grape that's grown in that region. Um and those are grown on seventy year old vines in that particular winery. And that was one of the best wines I've ever tasted, so I bought a bottle of that for myself. And I bought a bottle of late harvest um uh, uh Pinot uh not Pinot uh Sauvignon Blanc, which I really like. That's a sweeter wine. They let it um almost ferment on the vine and then they pick it and uh, you know, uh Ferment it, and uh, that's a wine that I really, really enjoy. It's it's on the sweet side, which is not normal for me, but I like that late harvest um, white wine.
0: So we're almost out of time, but I have a I have, a, I have basically a kind of wrapped up type thing. Before we before we continue, though, is there anything else you'd like to mention about France or your trip before we wrap up?
1: Well, I went there expecting to maybe be a skeptical American about it. Um, and I was completely overtaken by the, the countryside, by the people, um, by uh, the politeness of the society and how warm and friendly the people were once they realized my wife was speaking French and that I was trying. Um, we had some very, very, very good conversations with people, um, with, with some just, just random French people, this guy who owned a canoeing, uh, rental place. We sat and talked with him for about an hour. Um, and he just did that on his own. Talked with us about politics and culture and his perception of traveling in America and his perception of Americans and, um, his own take on his own government. And it, I, I was just, blown away, and I'm completely
0: in love with the country. Well, I mean, that's, so. that's good. That's good. I mean, my ex-wife was a little bit of a Francophile, I think, and so I have mixed feelings about France, but nothing to do with France itself, just other things. like I don't know. It, the way you describe that lifestyle in the countryside, it, it does seem like something that I, that I would love, but... I have no earthly way how I would ever get there or or afford it or any of that. I mean, I know people always say, well, you can, you know, do this and this and this. And I don't know. And the other thing that bothers me is that we could still have that here. We did. We did. I know when I was a kid, we did. So we could still have that type of environment in this country. But in order to do that, we have to actually get rid of a lot of government. Yeah. We do. You know,
1: what was, was, was interesting is we were at this um, winery and it was kind of connected to this, uh, uh, go farm and, uh, the, some other Americans and, and who we got to know while we were there were sitting around this table and we were talking about, you know, the uniqueness of the village life. And I said, you know, I grew up in a, a small town. But really, actually, is it's a it's a very small city, a Navy town in Washington, and I remember in the nineteen seventies that my mom would go shopping, and we would go to the bread store, and we would go to the butcher, and we would go buy produce, and then we would go to the supermarket and get you know all the box food and you know the commodity type stuff. And some of the people there were like, yes, I remember that. And some of the people were like, I never had that experience. And it was a very interesting sort of um, kind of take on the rolling changes that have come to our, our, uh, our economic and, and physical life over the past you know, 50 years of my life.
0: Well, I think a fair statement, in my opinion, would be the following. That the human ecology of the United States has gone downhill my entire life, and I'm sorry. And that sounds really stark, but there is an ecology, there is a human ecology to how we thrive, and it's been, it's not been going that direction. No,
1: no, i I'm, I'm, uh, I feel very alienated. I mean, man, I felt alienated before I left. <laughs> <laughs> and right now, I feel extremely alienated from, from what's going on around me. Stu and I went to a, a uh, burger joint yesterday, and we waited there. We had a, The burger was amazing. I mean, it was probably the best food I've eaten since I've been back. But we had to sit in this little place, and I had to sit next to this family who, I mean, were all so fat. I, I just couldn't believe it. Eating the guy was eating a triple cheeseburger and onion rings. And I mean, I'm not gonna cast stones. I had a I had a burger, but I had you know, I had like one patty, right? That's all I can eat. And the kid was eating in front of him, was playing with his onion rings and you know, like putting them on his face and and I just felt like dude, like you would be like shot daggers <laughs> in a French restaurant, doing that,
0: and I mean, how did you get that fat? Like, well, I think we've talked about how that happened, and and it's also, I mean, listen, dude, I think that I'm talking uh, fat, though. I understand, like, I'm about but dude, I'm 25-year-old guy, yeah. 25 maybe, yeah,
1: easily 400 pounds.
0: That's really fat. But if you ask me, if you walk down the aisles of these grocery stores, the explanation's right in front of you. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's not... I don't know how else to put it. You get fed a lot of mixed messages in America about diet. You get fed a lot of false information about diet. And then on top of it, I think they lie to us about the quality of the food supply. I think, you know, if you ask me, what's the purpose of the FDA... It is to rubber stamp poison. Yeah. It is. If the FDA was legit, you wouldn't have needed lawsuits. You wouldn't have needed lawyers or senators. If the FDA was legit, cigarettes would have been highly regulated a long time ago. But it's not legit. It, it's, it's about power. It's about control. And it's not that I'm against cigarettes, folks. I used to smoke. But what I'm opposed to is lying to people about the quality of their food and what they put in their bodies to include tobacco, because I think that's another agricultural product that has seen better days. And, and oh,
1: yeah. not to mention that they soak cigarette uh, tobacco and butane.
0: Yeah. <sighs> I don't
1: know, dude.
0: <laughs> so, so, and again, I don't want to, you know, we got to close out here, but yeah. I think an important key message from your trip is that you got to actually eat food. And I'm sorry if that sounds overly simplistic, but... Yeah. I
1: felt empty inside the first two days I was back. Like, I was eating, and I knew... Like, I felt a pit. Not, Not a painful pit, but like an emptiness
0: inside as I was eating the food. It took me some time to adjust. Yeah. I just, I'm just i shocked because I know you're an honest man, and you're describing food in terms. And it's important in a way to mention this before we go. You know, Immanuel Kant drew a distinction between the beautiful and the sublime. Humans right. can create beautiful things, according to Kant, but only the Lord in heaven, God, can create the sublime. And the food you're describing sounds sublime.
1: I've told some people that I, it was a religious experience for me. <laughs> I mean, I, I had, I had some food experiences that I could only describe as ecstatic. And I mean like physical, emotional, spiritual ecstasy.
0: Well, um, I, I want to mention one other thing before you go or, and to you and the listeners, Mike and I have talked about doing a kind of Bible study series and, um, I don't know when we can get started. The onus is on me. There's a book called Maranatha by Harry Bultima, and it's a book that was written more than 100 years ago, but it deals with um, eschatology and specifically the end times prophecies. And so what I was thinking about doing, not to be scary, because I don't claim that we're in the end times, I don't know what time it is. Only the Lord knows what time it is. (laughs) But But we we can know what's o'clock without knowing the time. Exactly. And part of talking about (laughs) prophecy and part of talking about the signs in prophecy is understanding that there will be events that will reify your faith. That's what prophecy does. Prophecy doesn't predict who's going to be the president. Prophecy doesn't tell you who's going to win some world war, probably. Prophecy doesn't help you invest in the stock market. But when you have prophecy and you actually experience the event, you have a reification of faith. So uh, Mike and I are probably going to try to do that here in a couple weeks. What do you think, Mike? Yeah,
1: I think that's great. I need to find my copy of the book.
0: Well, I'll take it on myself to do the reading. What I'll do is I'll send you the various Bible um, verses that we'll be covering on a week-to-week basis. So you don't have to find your copy of the book if you don't want to.
1: No, no, I do. I do need to find it, and I want to reread it myself, so it's been it's been some time since I've done anything but just pick through it
0: and the, know, and you know the
1: <laughs> it for quotes that I, I had underlined or whatever
0: and the first few chapters are mostly about the theory of understanding prophecy right. um and and again, Boltima comes from a certain perspective, I guess you could call it Dutch um not Calvinist would it be uh, um I would say that he
1: was a he was not he came from the reformed tradition and he was probably from a soteriology standpoint which is by the way the, um, theology of salvation right he was probably a non-strict Calvinist but um, I mean mostly he was a, a a virulent reactionary to what he called modernity modernism
0: and you know what <sighs> I think it, I think not only is it appropriate but It's almost critical to see some of what he has to say in those terms also. Like I I don't think he was a chicken little. I don't think he was saying a hundred years ago we're there. But one of the things he was saying a hundred years ago is that it appears that some of the signs are there. You know? And so again, go ahead. He
1: he called modernism a foul stench.
0: Yeah, but he wasn't the only person in that period of time, (laughs) religious or secular, that had the same feeling. I mean, Friedrich Nietzsche, you know, was very much a skeptic of modernity in a lot of ways. And yet at the same time, he wasn't religious in any sense. He was a skeptic of Christianity as well. There's a book I read of his a long time ago called The Antichrist, which, again, is mainly about um, Saul or St. Paul because from Nietzsche's perspective, if you read the Antichrist, um, Paul took the teachings of Christ and twisted them. That's Nietzsche's theory. I don't want to go yeah. there. But the bottom line is this. Um, I, I think that's a misreading of Paul. And I, and I know that there
1: are people who read Paul with a modern lens. And I think they're, they're reading something into it that's not there.
0: Well, but, but
1: and that's a conversation for another time. Yeah,
0: yeah. And, and I also think it's fair to point out that the Bible, even though, yes, it is the word of God, was an edited thing at the Council of Nicaea. And frankly, with every translation since then. So we have to understand the Bible with a critical eye and we have to understand prophecy with a critical eye. And, you know, if you read Boltima and others, they'll tell you this also. They'll say most of the Bible is really about prophecy. You know, that, yeah. I, I don't know if I completely agree with that overall perspective, but there is a deep connection between prophecy and, you know, I would say the Christian life. Um, yeah. You know, we, yeah, we're, expe- we're expected to be able to read the signs. You said something, and I know we're over time, but I think it's worth, worth reiterating. You said if you want to go to the countryside of France, you need to really learn the language. Right. Well, I think that in order for us to be Christians, we really do need to understand prophecy.
1: Yeah, it's it's most of the Bible.
0: Yep. And on that note, it is Thursday, October the 6th, 2022. And I've been talking with my good friend, Mike, and I really appreciate your time, dude. Um, I know you're a busy guy. You have a family. You have an actual job. So I know you got stuff going on, but I just, I think it's great. And you know, it's great because as simple a topic as it is, food, it's so critical to our lives. And it isn't just about how many calories you can get. It's how it's about how you get, you know, nutrition. And a lot of people think calories equals nutrition, and it really doesn't. Um, so that being said, Mike, have a great rest of your evening, okay? Thanks,
1: Dan. I really appreciate you, you having me on. And we'll talk again soon.
0: Yeah, and give me a couple weeks on the project On this project, I'll have to get some notes down, but maybe we can, you know, maybe towards the end of October, middle, you know, middle to the end of October, we could try for our first our first podcast. Perfect. Take care, brother. You too. All right. Talk to you guys later.